Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. My name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And A.V., thank you so much for becoming a patron. We really, really appreciate it. So this week's episode is a bit shorter than our usual, but it's still super important that we share it. The perpetrator in this story is still on the run. And also, I don't know if you got into the Dahmer show on Netflix at all, but it kind of reminds me of how police disregarded the severity of the police call, which is infuriating. Not to disrespect the police in any way, but I mean, if this situation happened to you and your family, it would be absolutely enraging. Also, please be warned that there are some graphic detail in this episode that may be triggering. Listener discretion advised. Nine one one emergency. I need help. Hello. I need help. Okay, where are you located? I'm sorry, ma'am. I can't hear you. Are you able to tell me where you're located? No. No. Are you at a... Okay, I got Sheldon. What's the number? 553, hurry, please, hurry. 553, Sheldon. Okay, can you tell me what's going on there? Okay, ma'am, I'll start the police that way. Can you tell me what your name is? one call was difficult to hear for the operator, and it's really unknown what exactly he heard. But you would think with a phone call like that, it would be an immediate invitation to go inside the home on 553 Sheldon Avenue Southeast in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The desperate caller is 25-year-old Kiana Griffin, and on March 13, 2019, she made the call in an attempt to save her life as she was likely hiding inside a bathroom, whispering to the operator to hurry and send help, explaining that she was going to die and her aunt has already been killed. Her aunt being 47-year-old Cherletta Baber Bay, who went by the name Cher, lived together in the house with Jackie Baber Bay, who was Cher's mother and Kiana's grandmother. But they weren't the only people who lived at the house. The other person who lived there was Cher's 47-year-old boyfriend, Jay Johnson. Ironically, Kiana had recently told her mother she was thinking of moving out of her grandmother's house because of Cher's boyfriend. The two clashed repeatedly, and Kiana thought her aunt's boyfriend was a controlling loser. He didn't work, he didn't have a phone, he didn't have social media, and he was a believer in conspiracy theories. He wouldn't even use email because he didn't want the government to be able to track him via a paycheck or phone line. For the most part, Jay kept to himself and rarely left Cher's room. Despite Cher's age, Jay was her first boyfriend, so her family put up with him because he seemed to make Cher happy. Cher's mother, Jackie, said that people might describe Cher as odd too. She would take Cher to the library, and it was there that she met Jay. 
The two hit it off immediately, and it was soon after that he moved in with the family in the little two-story yellow house owned by Jackie Baberbay. But on the day that Kiana called 911, Jay was nowhere to be found. In fact, it would take police just seven minutes to arrive at the two-story yellow house on Sheldon Avenue. But because of a miscommunication with the 911 operator, the police didn't believe they had exigent circumstances to enter the home. Of course, that wasn't true. Kiana stated during the 911 call that she was afraid of being killed and her aunt was already dead. That also gave them cause to enter the home. However, the 911 operator instead said that there was a possible assault, but he also said it could be someone who was mentally impaired. Now, with the police call, it's understandable. She was whispering. It was hard to hear her. But why would someone just assume that somebody was mentally impaired? Someone is calling for help whispering, which this led to criticism for both the operator and the police department for failing to enter the home. Body cam footage showed the officers were there for three minutes and 42 seconds. No one came to the door and the doors were locked. It appeared that no one was home despite a red car in the driveway. One officer walked around the back to look through a dining room window and there was no signs of foul play from what they could see. There was no answer, so they left. This would turn out to be a huge mistake because two hours and 18 minutes later, another call was placed to 911 from the yellow house on Sheldon Road. What's the address? I think it's in There's blood everywhere. My sister's not moving. Okay, stand on my. You say shirt? Sheldon. Sheldon, Southeast. It's a yellow house. Clean. Hurry up. 553 Sheldon Avenue, Southeast, correct? Yes, please. He says she's not breathing. I don't know. I don't. She's not moving. I'm holding her head, please. Okay. All righty. Stand the line with me. I do have fire and police on the way. Stand the line with me. We're going to connect over to medical, okay? Please. And you said that there's blood everywhere? There's blood everywhere. Okay. Did she cut herself or try to commit suicide? I don't know. She's doing her job. Medical Grand Rapids here. I pre-alerted already for 553 Sheldon Avenue Southeast. 553 Sheldon yes. Southeast? Yes. Pre-alerted already for a female there not breathing. Caller says she sees a lot of blood. All right. Caller? Ma'am? That was Sanford Cummings in the recording. He found his sister naked, covered in blood, and unresponsive. What a horrible thing to walk into. Seriously, my heart hurts for him to have to find his sister this way. In the call, he's begging the operator to send someone to save his sister, but it was already too late. Griffin had likely died shortly after she abruptly ended her 911 call a few hours earlier. 
When police arrived, they determined that Kiana had been shot fatally four times and once in the face. No one should ever have to find their sister like that. Police also found 47-year-old Cher lying in her bed on her side with earbuds still in her ears. An iPad had been propped up on a pillow and it looked like the person who killed her quietly walked up behind her and shot her once in the back of the head, execution style. She was likely never aware of the imminent threat. There didn't seem to be any signs of a struggle or an argument, and the iPad was still playing when officers arrived. According to Cher's family, they described her as a loving, trustworthy, and lovely woman who avoided social situations. Jay was her first true love, and they spent the majority of their time in her bedroom. Now, of course, the police immediately wanted to speak with Jay, but he was nowhere to be found. In fact, they learned that the name Jay Johnson didn't actually exist, at least not on paper. So police are scattering around at this point, trying to find out who is this man. Police do some digging and find an orange Nike shoebox shoved up high on one of the shelves in Cher's closet. And in this box were letters between Cher and an inmate who signed all of his prison letters as J. But the name didn't match with the inmate number on the envelopes nor the fingerprints. Those both corresponded to someone named Darrell Damon Brown. Police discovered that Cher's boyfriend was actually a really dangerous man with a violent history of abuse against women. So the strange behavior sensed by Kiana, how he was always paranoid of the government tapping in on his phone line, kind of makes sense. Cher thought her boyfriend was briefly in jail for failure to pay child support, but that wasn't the whole story. Cher was never aware of her boyfriend's violent past and history of terrorizing women. Now, police also found a bag close to the crime scene filled with ammunition and a 9mm pistol. The serial number on the gun matched a box for the gun found in one of Cher's drawers inside her bedroom. And also inside that gun box was a receipt with the name of the original purchaser of the gun. Police were able to trace that back to a previous girlfriend of Jay's who had reported the gun stolen back in 2017. At the same time, she had filed a complaint against her boyfriend named Jay Johnson for harassment. The two had broken up because Jay, who was really Durrell, was controlling and began stalking her. From there, police discovered the next piece in their puzzle. Prior to meeting Cher, Durrell had been homeless, and while he was homeless, he was going through a trash bin behind a church. Robert Dean was the reverend for the New Life Church of God, and he encountered Durrell down on his luck and offered him a hand up. For some reason, this is one of the few times that Durrell used his real name. The reverend offered him free room and board, along with a small salary in exchange for odd jobs like maintenance around the church, including landscaping, shoveling snow, and small repairs. But this all ended about three months later when Reverend Dean received a call from a woman who wanted to discuss her boyfriend named Jay. 
The reverend, of course, set the appointment and quickly understood that the man she was referring to as Jay was in fact his new hire named Durrell. Durrell worked hard and was quiet and unassuming, which made the woman's story hard to believe. She told him that she had been dating her boyfriend for only several months and she found him to be quite sweet and charming. However, lately his behavior had changed, which was causing her distress. He had become controlling and was making odd demands from her, one of which was that she was never allowed to talk to any man under any circumstance, and if he found her talking to a man, he had threatened her with violence. This woman was a grocery store clerk, which often required her to talk to men, and it was small interactions like this that had begun interfering with her job. She was hoping that Reverend could talk to Durrell and explain to him that these demands were unreasonable. But Durrell was there that day and saw his girlfriend enter the Reverend's office. This enraged him that she would expressly go behind his back and interfere with his job, but more importantly, that she was alone in an office with a man, even a man of God. Now, there were no exceptions to Durrell's demands that she never speak with another man under any circumstances. In a fit of anger, he barged into the office and approached his girlfriend with an open hand about to assault her before the reverend stepped in and stopped him. He told her that he intended to slap her for disobeying him. The reverend, of course, tried to talk some sense into Durrell and told him these demands and his actions were beyond a normal expectation in a relationship. And the conversation devolved to the point that Reverend Dean told Durrell to pack his things and leave the church immediately and to never contact this woman again. He told Durrell to seek professional help and, quote, stop terrorizing defenseless women, end quote. Later, Reverend Dean would have great regrets, feeling like he should have done more to help Durrell and avoid the violence that was to come. Of course, there was no way he could have known what kind of violence that Durrell was capable of. Now, this wasn't the only incident of assaulting women. Back in 2005, Durrell was arrested for felony assault on his girlfriend and mother of one of his children. He viciously attacked her over a period of hours, including overnight, where he bound her hands and feet with rope, he urinated on her body, and kicked her in the face repeatedly, all while her four children were terrified upstairs in their beds. But he wasn't done. He also doused her with lighter fluid and for hours terrorized her with a lighter, threatening to set her on fire and burn her alive. Throughout the night, he threatened to kill her, her children, and then himself. By the next morning, he had calmed down when her children began to awake and need their mother. He allowed her to walk her daughter to the bus stop that morning to go to school. And once the driver opened the door, this woman, who was covered in blood and bruises, begged the driver to close the door and keep driving. Under normal circumstances, a driver would never allow any adult or parent to ride on the bus with the children. But this driver sensed that this was a life-or-death situation and drove off with a terrified woman and her child. Later, she pressed charges against Durrell, and he was arrested for aggravated assault and attempted murder. Unfortunately, later, as is common with victims of domestic abuse, she failed to cooperate with his prosecution. Durrell had begged her for forgiveness and promised to change. 
His victim didn't believe that he would get the kind of help he wanted and needed while being locked up and as a result tried to drop the charges. Without her cooperation, the prosecutor was forced to offer him a plea deal. They offered Durrell a plea deal for misdemeanor domestic violence, which comes with a maximum sentence in Michigan of three months in jail or 90 days and a $500 fine. Once police realized who their suspect was and his violent history, they wanted to get him into custody as soon as possible to prevent him from hurting anyone else. About two hours after the bodies were found on Sheldon Drive, surveillance footage captured Durrell only a mile from the crime scene. He wasn't spotted again until a few hours later where surveillance video captured him at the Grand Rapids Michigan Children's Museum. He entered the building at 3.24 p.m. and exited at 3.36, just 12 minutes later. And on the video, you can see him approach someone at the front desk and then tell that person that he knows someone who works there and just wanted to go in and speak to them for a few moments. It is surmised that the person he wanted to speak with was a relative who gave him either money or a ride to help him escape. And then he is caught again on surveillance camera about 20 minutes later on a traffic cam in a residential neighborhood. He hasn't been seen again since that day. In a statement given to Wood TV by Jackie Baber Bay, she said, quote, There were no red flags at all. That's the reason why this is so maddening. What went wrong in that short span of time? This man blindsided all of us. He betrayed us, end quote. But that's not where our tragedy ends. On June 10th, 2020, Jackie Baber Bay, along with her daughter, who would be Kiana's mother, her grandson, Sanford, who is Kiana's brother, and his five-year-old son, all got together at the yellow two-story house on Shelton Drive for a private memorial for their loved ones. It was right after the pandemic lockdowns had ended and families were beginning to get together again. They wanted to honor their loved ones with their family and fellowship, and that's exactly what they did. They lit candles and sat out on their screened-in porch and told stories about Cher and Kiana. They laughed and they cried together. Then Sanford's son, EJ, wanted to spend the night with his great-grandma, Jackie. EJ was described as a pleasant handful full of energy. His favorite activity was playing Roblox on his iPad. So Sanford and Anya, Kiana's mother, went home. They decided to let the candles burn out themselves. Unfortunately, while Jackie and EJ were sleeping, the candles set the porch on fire. At 9.02 a.m. the next morning, there was a report of a house fire. The firefighters arrived quickly, but the entire front of the house was engulfed in flames. Jackie took EJ to a back bedroom where they hoped to be rescued. Unfortunately, they both succumbed to smoke inhalation. The family had endured unimaginable loss, all stemming from the evil acts of Durrell Brown. Now, in order for this family to regain any measure of justice, Durrell Damon Brown needs to be captured, taken off the streets, and tried for his evil acts on March 13th, 2019. We will definitely post the Marshall's Wanted poster on our social media pages. 
In July of 2021, U.S. Marshals intensified their search efforts by designating Darrell Brown as one of the country's 15 most wanted criminals, which includes a $25,000 reward for information leading to his location and capture. The marshal's office said that he is very unassuming and could be standing behind you in a checkout line and you may never notice him standing there. He is plain and ordinary looking and appears mild-mannered and harmless. He is anything but. The marshal's office believes he is receiving help from family or friends in either Ohio, Wisconsin, Arizona, or Georgia. The Grand Rapids Police Department released a statement saying, quote, We need the community's help locating Darrell Damon Brown, who is wanted in the homicides of Kiana Griffin and Sherletta Baber Bay. Darrell is 47 years old, 5'8 and 180 pounds. He could be in the Columbus, Ohio, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or the Atlanta, Georgia areas. Call police at 616-456-2400 with any information. End quote. This family has been through so much. The person who caused all of this evil is a dangerous killer who is still on the loose and could be anywhere hiding in plain sight with a different name, visiting libraries, dating new victims who have no clue. With that being said, make sure you take a good look at this wanted poster, share it on your social media too. We will be posting it on our Instagram and our Facebook because he could be anywhere. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We will be with you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.